Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out your Bibles now and turn in them to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn in it in the back portion to page 92, and you would find yourself at Acts chapter 2. We're involved in the third message in a series that we have begun entitled Seeds, subtitled The Acts of Jesus Through the Church. And the title that we have given to today's message is The Church's First Sermon. Now, I don't know about you, but some people have an adverse reaction to this word sermon. In fact, I think if we were going to do a survey of people at large and ask them to do a word association with the word sermon, I believe some of them would come back with this word, boring. Charles Spurgeon, who is called the Prince of Preachers, said this. He said, some ministers would make good martyrs. They are so dry that they would burn well. (laughs) Wow. But that catches the essence of some sermons. They're very, very boring. One of my mentors in life, Howard Hendricks, used to tell us when he taught us, it is a crime to bore people with the Word of God. We don't want to bore people with the Word of God. Another another analogy that might come when someone says, what do you think of when you think of sermons? Some people might say, well, rather weak, sort of hollow, a little bit empty, not much content to them. I came across this definition of poor preaching. It says this, poor preaching is the art of expressing a two-minute idea with an hour vocabulary. A lot of talking sometimes and not much really being said. Well, when we look at the first sermon in the church, Peter's sermon, we're going to find out today that his sermon was not boring and it was not weak in content. In fact, it's chock full of truth. Now, his overall message that we have laid out for us here in chapter 2 really covers verse 14 down through verse 40, and some people have taken those words and estimated his sermon took four to five minutes to preach. And I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, that length sounds about right to me for a sermon, four to five minutes. Well, if you are thinking that, I want to make two very quick observations, Observation number one is do not miss what it says in verse 40. We haven't gotten there yet, but here's what he says. After these four to five minutes of words, it says, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them. So I want you to know that it's more than four or five minutes that we have here for Peter's sermon. The second observation I would like to make, if you're thinking, yeah, four to five minutes, that sounds about right, is we could pick up on Paul's example and practice that. Because in Acts chapter 20, it says there that Paul prolonged his message and talked till midnight. How many people would be in for that today? Let's just keep talking all the way to midnight. I saw a couple of hands go up. I'm not sure you're being fully honest with me there. But anyway, we need to realize that there's a lot of content, wonderful content here. Last week, we talked about the birth of the church, and we talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And remember, the skeptics there in Jerusalem, some of the skeptics said, 
regarding the disciples. They're drunk on spirits. They're drunk on alcohol. And then Peter in chapter 14 down through verse 21 says, oh, no, no, no. It's the Holy Spirit. And this ability they have to speak these unlearned language, languages was given to them by the Spirit. So here's what we're going to look at today. First of all, we're going to look at Peter's message in verses 22 to 36. Then we're going to look at Peter's appeal in verses 37 to 40. And then we're going to look at the results in verses 41 to 47. So that's where we are headed, and we want to begin today when we look at the church's first sermon by looking at Peter's message. And here's the big idea in Peter's message, the very first sermon. The big idea is this, Jesus is alive. And we're going to see as Peter gives this sermon, he starts with Jesus as a man, and he's going to end with Jesus as Lord. But the big idea is that Jesus is alive. And he's going to cite three proofs that Jesus is alive. Proof number one that Jesus is alive is that God was at work in Jesus' life. Look at verse 22 down through verse 24. You can follow along as I read. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now notice he begins this message and he's talking to the men of Israel, the people gathered in Jerusalem, and he describes Jesus as Jesus the Nazarene. In fact, some seven times in the book of Acts, Jesus is described that way. He's either described as Jesus the Nazarene or he's described as Jesus from Nazareth. Why does he say that? Why doesn't he just say Jesus? Well, because a lot of people had the name Jesus in that day. Just like we have a lot of people who are named Bob or named Bill or Kathy or whatever. And so he's, he's saying, I want you to understand, I'm talking about Jesus the Nazarene. I'm talking about the one from Nazareth. I'm talking about the one who was attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. In other words, God the Father verified who Jesus was. And he says, this happened. These things were performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. I mean, they knew what went on. These people who were living in Jerusalem knew what went on. I mean, just one of Jesus' miracles had affected 5,000 men, plus their wives and, and plus their children. This is something that they had heard about and known about. And he says, regarding this man, Jesus, he was delivered over, verse 23, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. But he's basically communicating here that it's so important for them to understand, by the way, the godless men were, would be the Romans who put Jesus to death. He's talking about how God providentially was working his plan out. 
God was providentially working his plan out, something that he had planned beforehand. And yet, the people were still fully culpable. Do you see that in this verse? I just love the balance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. See, he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God was sovereign, but you were responsible too. You nailed him to a cross. You have sovereignty and responsibility blended together. And what that really means when we talk about God being sovereign and, and God being totally providential, it means that nothing occurs outside of the predetermined plan of God. Nothing in life ever happens outside of the predetermined plan of God, but people are still responsible for their choices. What, what does that, that mean for you and me in everyday life? It means that no matter what happens, no matter what it is that happens, God is always in control. He says there in verse 23, you nailed him to a cross. And the people that he was talking to, it's true that part of them were, were probably part of the mob that had yelled out, release Barabbas, crucify Jesus. But also we can say that everyone played a part. Everyone there in Jerusalem played a part. We all played a part because of my sins sent him to Calvary, and your sins sent him to Calvary. He was put to death, verse 24, but God raised him up again. And you know, do you notice what's missing in this whole section? We haven't gotten all the way through it yet, but what's interesting to me is what is missing. When he talks, talks about God raised him up again, there is no voice of protest that comes from the people. No one goes, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, despite the Pharisees' cover story, remember the cover story? The disciples stole the body. I think the evidence was clear. They knew the religious authorities could not produce the body of Jesus. They knew that Jesus had been making appearances, that he had appeared to more than 500 people at one time. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Jesus to be held in its power. Sometimes people say, well, what makes biblical Christianity unique? And, and probably the central thing that makes biblical Christianity unique is this thing. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what makes biblical Christianity different from any other kind of religious system that may be out there. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter's message is saying, Jesus is alive and proof number one is that God was at work in his life. Proof number two is the prophecy of David, and that's found in verses 25 to 31, where Peter is quoting Psalm 16. Now, we're not going to go through all these verses in detail, but I want you to notice the flow of thought here. Look at verse 27. David is writing in Psalm 16, and he says, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Hades refers to the realm of the dead. You're not going to abandon my soul to the realm of the dead. You're not going to allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And then in verse 29, even though it's David saying that, 
Peter says, hey, brothers and sisters, I can confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, the tomb of David was known. It was just outside the city of Jerusalem. And so if you came to Jerusalem for, say, the Feast of Pentecost, you could take your family and you could actually stop by the tomb of David. Now, we don't know exactly where that tomb is today because that tomb was destroyed in 70 AD. But what he's saying is David made this statement in verse 27, and David is dead and buried. What was the point? Well, verse 31. David was looking ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he, Jesus, was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. In other words, David in Psalm 16 was talking about the Messiah, not himself. He was talking about Jesus and his resurrection. Jesus is alive. And proof number three is found in verses 32 to 36, and that is that Jesus sent the Spirit Jesus sent the Spirit. Jesus multiple times over and over again said, I am going to send you the Spirit. I am going to send the Spirit. I'm going to send the promise of my Father to you. And here's Peter's argument. If Jesus was dead, he couldn't send the Spirit, could he? But since he has sent the Spirit, as you have just seen here in the previous verses we've looked at, Jesus is alive. Look at verse 33. Having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. And then he's going to quote from another psalm, which is Psalm 110, beginning in verse 34 and verse 35. Now, I want you to keep your finger here in Acts 2 as he quotes Psalm 110. And go with me in the left of your Bible, several books, to the book of Matthew and chapter number 22. Matthew chapter number 22. And Jesus used the same set of verses from Psalm 110 to confound the Pharisees. They were hammering Jesus with questions, and at the end of chapter 22, verse 41, Jesus turns the tables, and he asks them a question, verse 41 of chapter 22. He says, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? And of course, they gave the stock answer, the son of David. He said, well, let me just ask you this then. How does David in the spirit, talking about Psalm 110, Call him Lord, saying, the Lord, God, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Verse 45, if David then calls him Lord, how can he be his son? He'd be calling his son Lord. Well, no one was able to answer him. They didn't understand all of that. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Well, he's quoting the same section in his sermon there back in Acts chapter 2. In other words, what he's really saying ultimately is that David, by inspiration, was referring to the Messiah, and the Messiah is Jesus. Back in chapter 2 of Acts, verse 36, this is the summary point of it all. Therefore... 
Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. Let me just word it another way. He says, I want you all to know, Jesus is Messiah, and you crucified him. From a human perspective, the greatest crime in all of human history. God shows up, and you execute him. Well, let's look at Peter's appeal then in verses 37 and following. Notice the reaction to all this as all the word of God was laid out for them and everything. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. It's just a verb that means to get a real sharp sting. I mean, it went right in and it went in deep. You remember what the writer of the Hebrews says about the power of the word of God in chapter 4 and verse 12. He says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And they were hearing the word of God. and It pierced them to the heart. And so they end up saying to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? Do we need to be more religious? Is that what you want from us, to be more religious? What should we do? Do we need to pray more? Do do we need to give more money to the temple ministry? What do we need to do? And that leads us to verse 38, where Peter answers their question. Notice what he says there. Peter said back to them, here's what you need to do. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we look at verse 38, we need to do something here. We need to slow down just a little bit because we have to zoom in on verse 38. We want to clarify two different things. First of all, he says a word that we don't always understand. First thing out of his mouth, repent. Repent. That's what you need to do. The word repent literally means to change your mind. To change your mind about what? Well, the object is always determined by the context. What's the context of all of this? You need to repent. You need to change your mind about Jesus. You need to change your mind about who he was. And you need to embrace him as the Messiah, the one who came to die for you. Repent, he says. Now, I really believe that in the Bible, repent and believe are two sides of the same coin. Jesus, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, said this to the people, repent and believe in the gospel. You need to change your thinking and you need to put your trust in the good news that is being preached to you. Peter, in another occasion in the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 43, says this, to his audience there, he says, of him, of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness and through his name, everyone who believes in him receives 
forgiveness of sins. Repent and believe, two sides of the same coin. Paul in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, communicating there, he says, when someone wants to know what they need to do, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Two sides of the same coin. But what they really needed to hear was repent. There's an old proverb that says this, no matter how far you have gone on a wrong road, turn back. That was the message he was delivering to the people of Jerusalem. You've been on the wrong road. Turn back. It was really a call to embrace Jesus as Messiah by faith. That's what you need to do, men and women. Second thing we want to clarify involves the rest of the verse. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Here comes a key phrase, for the forgiveness of your sins. There are some people who take Acts 2.38, and here's what they say. They say Acts 2.38 teaches that you cannot be forgiven without being baptized. They would say that Acts 2.38 teaches that baptism is a condition for salvation. They would teach that baptism is essential if you want to be saved. In other words, they would actually teach that without adding baptism into your life experience, you're going to hell. doesn't make any difference if you believe. That's just part of it, but you have to be baptized. So when we look at verse 38, and he says, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. At a glance, it may seem a little unclear. What is it really saying here? What does this really mean to us theologically? Well, a key interpretive principle is this. Anytime you ever come to a passage of Scripture that seems to be a little bit unclear or a little bit obscure, we always must interpret the obscure by the clear. One thing we know is that the basic emphasis for our response to the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are to believe in it. 150 times in the New Testament, that's what it says. What do we need to do? We need to believe. We need to trust in. We need to rest in who Jesus was and what he did. So we need to remember that. That's very clear. 150 times over and over and over it says that. So how are we to understand what he's saying here in Acts 2.38 when he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? Well, you see that little word in our Bibles that is translated for? It is in Greek the word ace, E-I-S. And that word could be translated here one of two different ways. It could be translated, number one, in order to get. In other words, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in order to get forgiveness of sins. You've got to do that. Or it could be translated, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of your sins. Now, that second sense is a little more rare in the New Testament. But just to help you understand what I'm talking about, how, how the word for in English can be used different ways. Like, for example, if I said, I went to the store for some food, how would I be using the word? 
Meaning number one, I went to the store in order to get some food. Now, what if I said this? He went to prison for murder. He didn't go to prison in order to get murder. He went to prison because of murder. And I, this is just my personal opinion, I think even though that number two meaning is more rare, it just fits best with the rest of the New Testament. In fact, Jesus uses the word ice in a certain way. Uh, In Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, he talks about those who were in Nineveh. Remember when Jonah went to Nineveh and he was preaching to them? And it says there, they repented at, the word is ice, the preaching of Jonah. They didn't repent in order to get the preaching. They repented because of the preaching. So I think that's the best way to understand this. Now, now, Look at the results of all of this. Look at the results. Down in uh, verse 41, we have the result of what happened. So then those who had received his word about who Jesus is and what he had done were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now, that's an amazing. I mean, <laughs> 3,000 people responding to one sermon. And Anybody who ever preaches a message or sermon thinks, man, that would be great. That would be awesome. What's amazing about that number, and we don't know exactly how many people were converted in ministry under Jesus while he was on the planet, but it's possible that more people came to trust in God this day than in all of Jesus' ministry added up. And you remember when we started talking about this last week, we talked about this all happened on the day of Pentecost, and we said one of the purposes of the Pentecost festival was to celebrate the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Do you remember that? Might have forgotten that. In other words, they would celebrate by bringing the first part of the harvest and thanking God for the ultimate harvest. And that's really what we have happening here. We have 3,000 people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They're the first fruits of the multiple millions of people who would trust Christ through the ministry of the church in the future. Look at verse 42. Verse 42. Verse 42 is really important because it gives us insights into how the first church operated. It gives us insights into the first church's priorities, the way they conducted themselves. So let's look at it. Notice it says in verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, if you just look at that at a glance, you would say, well, it seems like they were continually devoting themselves, and it lists four things. But it's important for us to understand the way this is actually structured in the original language. The way it's structured in the original language is they were continually devoting themselves to two things. And the the last two are explanations for the second item. In other words, they were continually devoting themselves, number one, to the apostles' teaching, And number two, they were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. And the breaking of bread is an explanation deeper of what fellowship is, and so is also prayer. So let's look at the priorities of this early church group of people. Their first focus, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what the church was always designed to do. 
You can look at the Great Commission. Remember the Great Commission when Jesus says, I want you to go into all the world and I want you to make disciples. What's a disciple? A learner. And he goes on to say, I want you to teach them to observe all that I have commanded. That's what the church is to do as its primary function is to be teaching. And and keep your finger here and go with me a, a couple of books to the left to the book of the Gospel of Luke and chapter number 24, chapter number 24 of Luke. What does Jesus do after the resurrection? Well, he's hanging out with the disciples, but you know what he's doing? He's teaching them. He's teaching them truth. You remember what happens on the road to Emmaus when they don't really recognize who Jesus is? And look look at verse 27. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets of the Old Testament, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. He was teaching them. And it wasn't just on the road to Emmaus. Later on, when he got together with the whole group of them down in verse 44 of chapter 24, he was saying to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He was teaching them the word of God. Go back to the book of Acts and chapter number one. Acts chapter number one. He was alive, verse three, and he was presenting himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. What was he doing? He was teaching them, teaching them, teaching them. Where do you think Peter got all these verses he's quoting from in chapter two? Jesus had been teaching him. That's what the church is to do, to be continually, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. By the way, that's the number one activity we see of the, in the apostles in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. You see it over and over again. They were teaching. We see it here in chapter 2. We see it in chapter 3, verses 11 to 26. We see it in chapter 4, verse 2, verses 8 to 12, verse 31. We see it in chapter 5, verses 20 to 21. We see it also in verse Forty-two. We see it in chapter 6, verse 2. We see it very much of it going on in chapter 7. That's what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's kind of interesting. In Acts chapter 5, they're going to be called in front of the city council, the, the, the council of the town, and they're accused of this. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. That's why... Peter says in his first letter in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, long for the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up. That's what you need to do when you're born into the family of God. And Paul talked about the importance of being nourished on the words of faith and sound doctrine. And men and women, if you're new to Wildwood, you need to, to, that's one of our priorities here at Wildwood. That's what we want to do. We want to be devoted to the teaching of God's word. And we do that with our kids. We start when they're young. We want to build the word of truth into them. And we do that all the way through all of our ministries through adults. And that's why if you come to Wildwood, you're going to hear the teaching of the word of God. Second thing they focused on were continually devoting themselves was also to fellowship. And this is a whole lot more than 
you know, punch and cookies. Uh, the word fellowship means partnership. It, it means close relationship. They were devoting themselves to being brothers and sisters together in this eternal family called the church. And they were sharing their lives with one another. And you have all the one another's of the New Testament. You're to encourage one another and to care for one another and bear one another's burdens. And that's what they were doing. They were devoting themselves to this fellowship, this partnership, this close relationship. And part of that involved the breaking of bread, as it says there. Now, some people say, well, are they talking about just eating together? Or are they talking about taking the Lord's table together? And in my opinion, it was both. The Lord's table and meals were intertwined together in the early church. Look at verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Another thing that was involved in their fellowship and their partnership and their close relationship together was prayer. I mean, prayer unifies us as a spiritual family. Prayer connects us with God. Prayer is an expression of our dependence on God. And we've already seen them in Acts in chapter 1 praying, and we're going to see them praying more as we see the pages unfolded for us. I do want you to also notice, though, verses 44 and 45, because some confusion comes from these verses. It says, all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And some people look at that and say, well, there you have it. You have communism. Everybody was selling everything and just pooling it together, and it was all divided out equally. No, 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 no. In fact, we learn from chapter 5 of Acts, when you have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, you might remember that, and they sold the land, and then they wanted to donate it to the church. They lied about what they, were, they got for it, and they got disciplined for it. But here's part of what Peter says to them there. While that land remained unsold, it remained your own. And he said, even after it was sold, it was under your control. It was up to you to determine how much you might want to donate, if any. Now, they lied about how much they did. That was really the issue, the hypocrisy. But we don't have communism going on here. What was basically happening is that as people came to faith in Christ, they were losing their jobs. They were being fired from their jobs because they were seen as re uh, rejectors of Judaism. And so they were becoming destitute. They didn't have a way to live. And so the church began because there's this partnership and this close relationship together. People would sell things and then there would be the ability to share as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing, verse 46, with one mind in the temple, they were in larger gatherings together, and then also they were going from house to house and taking their meals together. They were in smaller groups, but the whole point of all this is they were very connected relationally. And then there's an interesting verse there in verse 47. They were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, it's our responsibility to tell the story. It's our responsibility to share the gospel, but we don't change people's hearts. And the same thing was happening. As they were sharing the message, people were coming to faith, but it was the Lord who was adding to their number. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty exciting sermon. 
I mean, that's a, that's a great first start for the church. Now, as, as we conclude our time, we want to talk about some life response. How can you respond and how can I respond to everything we've examined so far today? Well, I'm going to suggest, suggest two questions and also I want to lay out a challenge. Are you ready? Question number one is this. Have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? It may not be that baptism is essential to receiving salvation. I don't believe that it is. But it is important because baptism is our opportunity to declare to other people that Jesus is our Savior. You know what is interesting to me? When I look at the pages of the New Testament, I find no such thing as an unbaptized believer in the New Testament church. You can't find them anywhere. So if Jesus is your rescuer from sin and judgment, have you been baptized? If not, why not? And by the way, we're going to have a baptism class next Sunday here at Wildwood at 10.50 in the 10.50 hour, this hour down in room four. So if you haven't been baptized, show up. 10.50 next week, room four. Question number two. Are you connected with other believers? Are you connected with other believers? You know, we need one another. And sometimes what you see is that people who are operating with this Lone Ranger syndrome, you know, it's between me and the Lord, me and the Lord, just me and the Lord hanging out together. I don't need all these other, no, 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 no. That's not the way the early church was at all. And when you stray from the herd, you know what happens? You become an easy target for a spiritual predator. Are you connected to other believers? It's vital for your spiritual survival and your spiritual growth. So we have those two questions, and then now I have a challenge to give. Here's the challenge. Come home to Jesus. Come home to Jesus. Peter quotes in verse 21, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And often we have people who come around Wildwood and they don't really know the Lord. They don't know Jesus personally. Why were you born? Well, I don't know all the answers to that, but part of it is you were born to come to know the God who made you. Max Lucado tells a great story. It comes out of the country of Brazil. It's a story that comes from a very poor neighborhood in a very small village. It's a story that involves a mom by the name of Maria and a daughter by the name of Christina. And Christina's father had died when she was an infant. And Christina grew up, was into her teenage years, and she was a very attractive young girl with olive skin and pretty brown eyes. And here's where Max Lucado picks up the story. It says, Christina spoke often of going to the city. She dreamed of trading her dusty neighborhood for exciting avenues and city life. Just the thought of this horrified her mother, Maria. Maria was always quick to remind Christina of the harshness of the streets. People don't know you there. Jobs are scarce and life is cruel. And besides, if you went there, what would you do for a living? Maria knew exactly what Christina would do or would have to do for a living. 
That's why her heart broke when she awoke one morning to find her daughter's bed empty. Maria knew immediately where her daughter had gone. She also knew immediately what she must do to find her. So Maria quickly threw some clothes in a bag and gathered up all her money and ran out of the house. On her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore to get one last thing, pictures. She sat in the photograph booth, closed the curtain, and spent all she could on pictures of herself. With her purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew Christina had no way of earning money, and when pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were before unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search, bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with the reputation for street walkers or prostitutes. She went to them all, and at each place, she left her picture, taped maybe on a bathroom mirror or tacked to a hotel bulletin board or fastened to a corner phone booth, and on the back of each photo, she wrote a note. It wasn't too long before both the money and the pictures ran out and Maria was forced to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. It was just a few weeks later that young Christina descended a particular hotel's staircase. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for her secure pallet at home. Yet the little village was, in too many ways, too far away. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, Christina noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. Written on the back was this compelling invitation, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. And men and women, for some of us here today, the message may very well be, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. A Savior is waiting for you. No matter how far you've gone on the wrong road, turn back. The issue is not the choices we have made, no matter how poor they have, may have been. The, the, the issue is not the kind of person you are. I don't know if God could really use or be merciful to say. He's in the transforming business. The issue is not whether you understand everything there is about God and Jesus. All you need to know is that Jesus died for you. He paid the penalty for you. I want us to pray together as the worship team comes to lead us in a closing song. Let's just pray together. Father, we just thank you for this great first sermon. A lot of ramification, a lot of truth here. But ultimately, Father, we want to pray for any who may be here who've never yet met you. May they realize that no matter how far they've gone on the wrong road, they need to turn back. And whatever they have done, whatever they have become, it doesn't really matter because Jesus is waiting to give them forgiveness, to give them new life, to give them his spirit to live inside of them and to show them a new way. What an amazing truth it is that you can transform our lives. It's all because you loved us. You loved us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.